0: I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Christopher Kayser. He is a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. A Fulbright scholar, he did postdoctoral work as a federal chancellor fellow at the University of Cologne and as the William E. Simon Visiting Fellow here at Princeton University's James Madison program. He was appointed a corresponding member of the Pontifical Academy for Life of Vatican City as well as a fellow of the Word on Fire Institute. He has written scores of scholarly articles and book chapters, as well as 16, that's right, 16 books of his own. He joins us today to discuss his newest book, co-authored with Matthew Petrusik, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. Christopher Kayser, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Let's start with Jordan Peterson, author, clinical psychologist, professor, in global phenomena. He burst onto the scene a few years ago, and since then, his YouTube videos have more than 150 million views. His podcast has been downloaded tens of millions of times. His books have been purchased by millions upon millions of people. He's a soft-spoken intellectual who sells out arenas around the world. Why?
1: Well, I think part of the reason that he's so popular is that he tries to live according to one of his rules, which is to tell the truth or at least not lie. So Hmm. he is someone who speaks his mind whether or not this is popular or politically correct or woke. And the consequences of that are something that can be quite severe. He was disciplined by his university and sent these uh, kind of pre-termination letters, basically. And despite these sorts of threats from the outside, he continued to say what he thought was true. And I think that people can sense when he talks that he really believes what he says. And because there's so many people out there that are kind of BS artists, you might say, I think that he stands out by contrast with these uh, other kinds of voices. The other thing that I think is part of his attraction is that he is very articulate and willing to engage directly with people with whom he disagrees. So in a series of controversial interviews, he was really grilled by people that totally disagreed with him, disrespected him and didn't even want to listen to him really. And yet he remained calm and he articulated his views in a very persuasive way. So I think for a lot of people that showed um, a great deal of character, but also showed a way forward in, in terms of engaging with people with whom you disagree. Sure. So I think for those reasons and others, uh, let me just add one more. I think that part of his attraction for many people is the way he combines a scientific um, fluency with openness to non-scientific ideas. So he'll talk about mythology, he'll talk about poetry, he'll talk about literature, and he'll talk about the Bible. And so I think for a lot of people, these two things belong in totally separate categories. So if you're committed to science, that means obviously that you're totally opposed to all these other ways of knowing. And then if you're open to religious poetic ways of knowing, well, that means you're totally opposed to science, but his way of proceeding really bursts this sort of presupposition.
0: Yeah. In a moment, I'd certainly like to talk more about this presupposition. But first, I'm curious about this. Jordan Peterson seems to be particularly popular with young men. I don't have any statistics to prove that, but that's what I've heard. And it's been my experience. Why do you think that is? What What is it about him and what he's doing that's so appealing to young men?
1: Um, well, the first thing to say about that, I think, is that this is true of Uh, almost everyone. So for instance, if you look at Oprah Winfrey or something, uh, her demographic is going to be 90 plus percent uh, female. And it's weird that no one has a beef with that. No one says, oh, Oprah, well, you, something must be wrong with you because 90% of your audience is female. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of women who like to watch talk shows. And so Oprah's audience was overwhelmingly female. So the fact that Jordan Peterson has uh, a, predominantly, not not totally, but predominantly male audience, um, I don't think is at all problematic. I mean, the fact is different things appeal to different kinds of people, right? If you look at the people who practice jujitsu, right, it's going to be 90% male. And is there a big problem with that? Well, no, it's like different kinds of things appeal to different kinds of people. So I don't have any problem at all with that. The fact that his audience is predominantly male. What explains that? I would say part of what explains that is that I think people... Uh, get a sense from him that he's a courageous person, mm. that he's willing to say what he thinks is true, despite what may be very adverse consequences. And I think that that is something that appeals to men. I think that men admire people that have personal courage. I mean, you think about how uh, many athletes are idealized by, by young men. Why? Because it takes courage to put yourself in the arena, to suffer uh, losses and maybe even injuries, when you're competing in uh, especially physical sports. So I think that Jordan Peterson exemplifies that in the intellectual arena. He's willing to stand and uh, do as it were combat. And uh, there's a huge risk in that. Yeah. And if he says the wrong thing, if he does the wrong thing, he's gonna get uh, not only pushback, but could you know, be terminated by his uh, employer, the University of Toronto, he could face all kinds of consequences. And so I think that his courage is something that sticks out uh, as an admirable characteristic that appeals especially to men. Not everybody
0: loves Jordan Peterson. Do you think that his courage, his outspoken example of courage, in part explains why people, other people, think he's so dangerous?
1: Oh, that seems that seems right. I mean, I think there are many people who believe what he believes, but are unwilling to say it in public. Right. And so he is willing to say it in public, and therefore he attracts a lot of criticism. And a lot of the criticism I think really is unfair in the sense of, I think that many of his critics want to attack him, but they're really unwilling to listen carefully and to learn. So what I find missing very often in conversations about him and even conversations with him is that his interlocutors are unwilling to give even an inch uh, to him and, and, and have a real conversation because typically I think in a real conversation, if somebody disagrees with you, unless they're insane, they have some point, right? There's some grain of truth or some element of uh, veracity in what they're saying. And many times his opponents seem to be unwilling to grant him anything at all. And I think that's really too bad because I think the conversation can be a lot more fruitful if you're willing to say, you know, um, I can kind of see why you say such and such. There's, There's some element of truth to that. And I can actually account for that. Um, or I can learn from that and still hold onto my view. Or maybe, you know what, you're right. I'm going to have to change my view. You, you actually are right on this point. But, but so many times in these conversations, it seems like the people he's talking to are unwilling to bend even a centimeter. And I think that's really too bad. And I think that shows a bit of dishonesty because again, if someone is an intelligent, um, non-insane person, and they disagree with you, typically there's a little something to their view. And I think it's worthwhile acknowledging that.
0: All right. Working our way toward your book. Where did your interest in Jordan Peterson, specifically his relationship to Christianity, where does this interest come from?
1: Um, I think maybe the first time that interest arose was in listening to his uh, YouTube videos about the Bible. So in those videos, he's putting forward basically his own interpretation of scripture. So he'll, he'll read a line from Bible from the Bible, like say, and God said, let there be light and there was light. And then he'll kind of launch into this very interesting interpretation of that, that verse in which he'll bring to bear uh, scientific knowledge and poetic insights and uh, knowledge from all kinds of different sources. And so for me, what that made me think of right away is the way in which many church fathers have interpreted scripture so typically if you have someone like augustine he's not going to just bring one level of interpretation to the text but rather he's going to view the text as this very very rich source in which he's going to bring to bear in interpreting it all these different resources so augustine for instance makes this very explicit in his work de doctrina christiana and he says there that when you're interpreting scripture, you can bring to bear all available knowledge Hmm. to understand the text better. And so when I heard Peterson giving his interpretation, I thought, well, this is really walking in the footsteps of Augustine. Hmm. Now, I don't think Peterson uh, was aware of that or is aware of that, that, you know, his method of interpreting scripture is actually quite traditional. It's something that Augustine and Chrysostom and Thomas Aquinas and many others would have recognized and really appreciated this idea that when we're interpreting scripture, we can bring to bear all available knowledge because ultimately if their views are correct, God is the ultimate source of all truth. And so the truth that's available in scripture and the truth that's available outside of scripture are ultimately in harmony. And so you can use both forms of truth to interpret the other.
0: Okay. Into the book. Part one, a Christian response to the biblical series. And that's Jordan Peterson's series of lectures on the Bible you just mentioned. And they're all available on YouTube, and I'll put a link to those in the show notes. But let's start here. You talked a little bit about how Jordan Peterson's approach actually isn't all that unique. It's something Aquinas and Augustine and the other church fathers would have recognized. But what is it that makes it unique? I mean, he has hundreds of millions of downloads for a reason. What is it that he does that's so unique?
1: Well, I would say that one way that, that's quite unique is that obviously Augustine and Aquinas didn't have contemporary science. And so what Jordan Peterson is going to do in part in interpreting these texts is bring to bear things like evolutionary psychology and interpret the text of Genesis in light of these modern contemporary scientific truths that people like Augustine and Aquinas had absolutely no access to. So that is certainly something that is distinguishing of um, Peterson's way of reading scripture from these more kind of traditional sources. But another thing that differentiates him is his Uh, you might say, non-commitment to God. So what I mean by that is, obviously, people like Aquinas and Augustine fully endorse and try to live by the idea that God exists, whereas Peterson has been much more coy and much uh, less committed to, to that sort of idea. So he'll say things like, well, I try to live as if God exists. But in terms of actually committing to the idea, yes, there's a God. He seems unwilling at this point to do that. And likewise, unwilling to commit to the idea that Jesus is really God. So obviously people like Aquinas and Augustine are fully committed to the truths articulated in the Nicene Creed. They think that Jesus is God from God, light from light. But Peterson of course is not willing to do that. So in a way, there's a certain distance that Peterson has from the scriptures that these these traditional authors wouldn't have in that the traditional authors are gonna see scripture as God's word and therefore as having a fullness and plenitude of meaning that goes beyond what any human author could have conveyed. Whereas Peterson is is not committed to that idea. And so he does actually agree that scripture has this sort of richness of meaning. But I think that someone like Aquinas would say that there's a kind of infinity to the richness of meaning that scripture has precisely because it's authored by God and God's intentions inform it. And so on Aquinas's view, say, if you read a, biblical text, and I do, we might come away with totally different interpretations. And yet, because God is the author, they both might be true. Mm. God could have, in other words, on this view, from all eternity intended that you read the scripture in one way, and I read the scripture in a different way. And yet God intended both of those meanings, just as a very talented author could write a letter to two people and actually intend that both people take away different messages from that letter. And so Aquinas thinks that God is, you might say, the ultimate author of Scripture, and therefore can intend this infinity of of possible meanings, true meanings. Now, Peterson's view is uh, that Scripture is incredibly rich, but because he doesn't necessarily endorse this, this idea that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, it's not, you might say, infinitely rich.
0: Sure. You mentioned there that part of what makes Peterson unique is that he brings contemporary science to bear in interpreting Scripture. We have some listeners, it's just set off alarm bells. They're saying, what do you mean bringing contemporary science to bear on the Bible? They're incompatible. The Bible says God created the man and female. Science says the creatures we recognize today as human beings have evolved into this form over the centuries. Science says the earth is a few billion years old. The Bible says a few thousand. How could a scientifically minded person,
1: as Peterson calls himself, take the Bible seriously? That's a great question. And I think that it is a huge problem for certain kinds of Protestant fundamentalists. But I think the problem you describe is actually no problem at all for someone in at least the Catholic tradition. And the reason is that when we interpret scripture, what we try to do is look to the genre of scripture Mm -hmm. to determine how we ought to properly interpret it. And this is an intelligent way of reading any text. Imagine that I read Shakespeare's sonnet 18, and in that sonnet it says, um, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May and summer's lease hath all too short of date. And let's imagine I interpret that as a weather report. And mm. so I look in the Almanac and I look at you know May and oh, there's no rough winds in May, it's very calm, no winds. And I say, well, Shakespeare's a horrible uh, reporter of the weather. Well, that would be a really stupid way of reading <laughs> sonnet 18. In other words, Shakespeare is not trying and failing to report the weather, he's trying to do something different. So in order to interpret any text properly, it seems to me that you need to take into account very seriously the genre of the text. So what is the genre of Genesis? Well, Genesis is a creation narrative. Hmm. And in order to interpret a creation narrative properly, we need to put it in context. And the context of the Genesis story is rival stories of creation that were told in the ancient world. So what are those stories? Well, there's a bunch of them, but the Babylonian story is most likely the story that the Genesis story is meant to be a counter narrative to. And in the Babylonian account of creation, what happens is that creation arises from a violent conflict among rival gods. And so Genesis is meant to be a counter-narrative to that, saying, no, no, creation did not arise through a violent conflict among rival gods. Genesis says first that there are no rival gods. There is only one God. And secondly, and more importantly, Genesis says that the origin of creation is not a chaotic battle, but rather the origin of creation it arises from intelligent speech. That is to say, things get going when God says let there be light. And so when we're interpreting Genesis, we're going to radically misunderstand it. If we think, oh, this is a rival to Charles Darwin. What Genesis is trying to do is put forward a scientific explanation of the world in the same manner that someone like Charles Darwin is putting forward a view, a scientific explanation about the world. I think that's a total misunderstanding. It'd be a little bit like reading Genesis and saying, um, well, saying, well, is is the text of Genesis for or against iPhones? Mm -hmm. And like searching carefully through the text and saying, well, it's it's against iPhones. No, 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 it's for iPhones. It's not about iPhones. It, It literally can't be. It was written thousands of years before anyone had an iPhone. So it's not for iPhones. It's not against iPhones. And in a similar way, the text of Genesis is not for or against evolution. It's simply not talking about that at all. It's in a whole different conversation. It's a whole different Genesis of thought. And so one of the things that, that I appreciate about Peterson is that I think he recognizes this fact that to interpret Genesis properly, we can't interpret it as if it is a, you know, 19th century scientific text uh, against evolution. Mm-hmm. It simply cannot be that. That's to import contemporary categories and contemporary understandings and it, the wrong genre onto an ancient text and therefore is to radically misunderstand that ancient text.
0: I had, and I I have uh, never listened to Peterson's biblical series. And it it sounds like I should, because I actually really enjoyed in in your book, reading some of his explanations or interpretations of what's going on in scripture, and you are riffing off of him. I, I found it really rewarding. Is there a passage or a story from the Bible that Peterson explores that you find particularly interesting or worthwhile?
1: I would say the beginning parts of Genesis, I enjoyed uh, in particular. So that's a story of creation, the story of Adam and Eve. And then Peterson also is a huge fan, uh, and I am too, of the story of Cain and Abel. Mm. And I think this is, it's a, I never really understood the story, I think until I heard him explain it. And then once he explained it, it opened up a door for me to really appreciate it in a much deeper way. The story is really a universal human story. It's a story of obviously a rivalry between brothers, but it's really a story of the human condition because whenever you're with someone else, that person is inevitably going to be uh, in your own mind, a comparison point. Mm -hmm. And so you look at someone or talk to someone and you'll say, well, this person's better than me in terms of maybe uh, physical strength not as good as me in terms of uh, intellectual development, better than me in this, worse than me in that. And so because we are always comparing ourselves to others, inevitably the question arises, well, what do we do with those sorts of comparisons? So Cain compares himself to Abel and the sacrifice of Abel is accepted by God. And so Cain becomes very jealous of Abel. So that's one response as you become jealous and you want to eliminate your rival, you want to tear that person down. But another response uh, is arguably the response that Abel had to Cain. So Cain, in some respects, uh, was better. He was the firstborn. He was the one that Adam has um, brought into the family business as it were. And so he could have been jealous of his brother and he could have said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not the firstborn. I didn't get the family business. I'm, I'm second fiddle. And he could have sought and try to destroy Cain. But his response, at least Peterson argues, is to try to improve himself, not to dwell in envy, to dwell in jealousy of his brother, but to, in a way, be inspired by the ways in which his brother excelled and then to be inspired himself to improve himself and move forward. So, part of what i liked about peterson's interpretation of of cain and abel and also his interpretation of other uh, these stories from genesis is that it's not simply some f- story about what happened to people a long time ago it's really a story all these stories are really stories about the universal human condition hmm. it's true about me it's true about you it's true about everyone that we have rivals it's true about me, it's true about you, it's true about everyone, that we are tempted to become like God. And that's the temptation of Adam and Eve to eat the fruit, to try to become divine. So these stories are universal and they have this universal applicability. And Peterson kind of highlighted that for me in a very fruitful way.
0: How does Jordan Peterson treat Jesus? And, and what I mean by that is this, does he reject that the man was real? He, he was just another useful myth. Does he acknowledge that he was real, but he didn't actually believe himself to be the son of God? He didn't really perform miracles.
1: Um, What does he do with that? That's a good question. And I think the answer is somewhat ambiguous. So as far as I understand, Peterson acknowledges the idea that Jesus of Nazareth was an actual historical figure. And in doing this, he is um, in accordance with the vast majority of contemporary scholars. So uh, over a hundred years ago, there was a kind of theory that there actually was no Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. that The whole thing is just made up uh, out of whole cloth. He's like Zeus or like Aphrodite or whatever, just, just a myth totally made up. And basically that view, uh, even though it was proposed about a hundred years ago, ended up being completely rejected. That basically contemporary scholars, including atheists like Bart Ehrman, all of them acknowledge that there was a Jesus of Nazareth. This is a real historical figure. Now, so Peterson acknowledges that. Now, after that, we get into territory that there is a lot of dispute about. So, for instance, uh, was this Jesus of Nazareth um, merely a Jewish kind of prophet, or was he more? Was he God from God, light from light, or was he just a merely human teacher? Now, in that point, Peterson's view seems to be something like this. That he doesn't come down and say that he believes Jesus is God, but what he does say is something like this, that Jesus represents, as it were, the highest and the most ideal human being possible. So he serves as a kind of, uh, you might say, a mythical ideal or mythical goal, whether or not he was, in fact, God or perfect. In fact, he serves, you might say, in the unconscious as a sort of ideal that can measure the perfect hero. So, if we look at all kinds of stories about heroes, um, you know, you have all kinds of stories of heroes overcoming evil. And so, the greatest hero would be what? The one who confronts and encounters and overcomes the greatest possible evil. Yeah. And so, what would the greatest possible evil be? Well, for human beings, the greatest possible evil, arguably, would be death and eternal punishment. And so Jesus, if he's the archetypal hero, the greatest possible hero, is going to confront death, overcome death, and overcome this greatest possible punishment, eternal punishment. And so Peterson, as far as I can tell, is still exploring the idea of whether or not this uh, ideal is actually an actualized ideal. In other words, is it merely an idea or is there a reality to it? Or you might put it this way, is... Did the myth become fact? And so on this point, as far as I can tell, the, he is still exploring exploring that possibility. And has it really come down one way or the other on whether the myth became fact, whether the ideal became a fact in history, he just, as far as I know, is still exploring that possibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to force you to put words in, into his mouth. So I'll, I'll just pose this as an open-ended question. He's welcome to come on the podcast and discuss it. But I, I wonder whether you can hold both this interpretation of uh, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden being about the dangers of aspiring to be God, to be divine. I wonder whether you can hold that interpretation at the same time as believing that Jesus would be an ideal perfect person as he himself claimed to be God it seems difficult
1: that's right and i've never heard him respond to the argument i think you're you're talking about so if i if i'm reading between the lines there's a classic argument that says jesus is either god or a bad man yeah. and the idea is if jesus says things like before abraham was i am things like whoever sees me sees the father the father and i are one if he forgives people's sins in his own name if jesus is doing all these things he is implicitly making a claim to some kind of equality with God. And in the gospels, at least, that's how many of the people of Jesus' day reacted to him. In fact, they tried to kill him on several occasions for making himself equal to God. And in fact, in the end did kill him because he made himself equal to God. The charge in part was blasphemy. In other words, you're making yourself equal to God. Now, if those gospel accounts are reliable, then we have a kind of problem. Because if Jesus was merely a human being, merely a good teacher, something like an ancient Gandhi, well, he seems to be making claims about himself that are hard to reconcile with the kind of humility that we would expect from someone like Gandhi, or someone like Confucius, or someone like Buddha. Those figures never claim to be God. And so when Jesus does claim to be God, that seems to lead us to a certain difficulty so if i claim to you to be god and say hey i'm god before abraham existed i existed if you want to go to heaven i'm the way i'm the truth i'm the life i want you to give up everything and follow me if i said all that to you you'd say well kaiser you're totally crazy what are you talking <laughs> about you're you're a normal guy i know you and you're, you're you're nothing special um and so you might say i'm crazy and that could be a possibility many people who claim to be jesus or claim to be God are crazy. They're muttering to themselves, they're homeless, they're totally out of their minds. On the other hand, if I say things like that, it could be that I'm deliberately trying to uh, mislead you and get something out of you. So I know I'm not God, but I'm telling you this because I wanna get your money or I want uh, a harem of young brides, or I want something, I want power, I want fame, I want whatever. Now, the trouble is Jesus doesn't seem to be crazy. He seems to be way too wise and way too um, uh, deep and spiritual and uh, to be a kind of crazy person muttering to himself, thinking he's God. And then is he a bad person who is deliberately misleading people? Well, that also seems to be incompatible with the character of Jesus. So I don't know how someone like Peterson would respond to this God or a bad man argument. Um, I've never heard it posed to him. So I'm not sure what he would say. I mean, he could say, well, the Gospels are not reliable, right? The Gospels are inserting into the text this idea of Jesus claiming all these things. So that's one option. Um, The trouble with that, though, is, at least according to many scripture scholars, these sorts of claims are, in fact, um, highly likely to be historically reliable. So if you look at the kind of criteria they use to differentiate things that they think are reliably or likely to be said by the historical Jesus from those that aren't. These sorts of sayings are so prominent in all the gospels that they're highly likely to be have been said by the historical Jesus. So the bottom line is, I'm not sure how he would respond to this, but I'd be very interested to know how he'd respond to this God or a bad man kind of argument.
0: Well, he is a standing invitation to come on the podcast and explain, and we'll invite you back to, to speak with him. You're making my job very easy today because I'm about to steal this next question from your book and you've already begun to answer it. But toward the end of part one, you pose and then answer this question. Where does Peterson's scriptural analysis from a Christian perspective fall short? So there's the question from a Christian perspective, where does Jordan Peterson's analysis fall short?
1: Well, Peterson's uh, interpretation of scripture is, for the most part, the moral sense of scripture. So if we read a story, say the story of um, uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis, or the story of uh, Jesus interacting with the woman caught in adultery, the moral sense of scripture would be the way in which this story can inform our own behavior today. So in other words, how should I live differently in light of this story, that's the moral sense of scripture. But a Christian understanding of scripture is typically not limited simply to the moral sense. You also have, for instance, the literal sense of scripture. Now, what is a literal sense of scripture? It's what the human author intended to convey by whatever was written there. And so Peterson, for the most part, doesn't uh, attempt to provide the literal understanding of scripture. But I think for Christians, this is uh, obviously a very important uh, element of interpreting scripture. And in fact, for Aquinas, it is the primary sense of scripture on which the other senses, the moral, enagogical, et cetera, are based. So I think that would be one limitation. A second limitation, I think, would be that for Christians, of course, uh, scripture is God's word. And... God continues to operate in the community through the church, at least in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox interpretation of Christianity. So for, for Catholic Christians, to interpret scripture properly is something that not just I do individually and alone, that I am the sole and final interpreter of scripture, but rather a proper interpretation of scripture is, is accomplished within the broader community of interpretation. And so since Peterson is not a Christian, or at least hasn't publicly identified in that way, um, his reading of scripture is necessarily going to not include that sort of communal aspect of interpretation, which it would include for, say, someone like me. So uh, one way to think about it is this, that Augustine says that there can be multiple true interpretations of scripture, any particular passage, but that's not unlimited in the sense that there can also be false interpretations of scripture. So how does he differentiate those? Well, he says that if your interpretation of scripture leads you to hate God, hate your neighbor, or hate yourself, then that's a false interpretation of scripture. And you can imagine somebody doing this pretty easily. I mean, imagine I open up a Bible and it says, Judas hanged himself. And then I turn to some other passage and it says, go and do likewise. And Mm -hmm. I think, okay, well, I'm supposed to kill myself. Great. Well, Augustine would say that's a bad interpretation of scripture because it's contrary to love of God, love of neighbor, and love of myself for me to go out and kill myself. So for Catholics, at least, the proper interpretation of scripture is is brought about, not simply individually and alone, the Bible and me alone, but rather in this broader community, a community which helps define and interpret, say, what real love is, um, what the ultimate goods of life are, et cetera. So that would be one way in which Peterson's interpretation of scripture would see, be seen as incomplete.
0: Sure. When I accepted a, uh, a position with the James Madison program, it was made very clear to me. When you do a podcast, you have to mention the natural law. So so here we are. Okay. I'm joking, of course, but here we go. Uh, <laughs> the natural law, our relationship to it and our relationships with one another in light of it. And I'm quoting you here. The natural law, as explicitly understood, is not recognized in theory by all, nor does it need to be, end quote. And you use the analogy of a person who can speak grammatically correct sentences without necessarily studying grammar or being able to articulate the laws of grammar. And and that may be true, but would they be able to teach someone else how to speak properly? And so applying this to the practical, but not necessarily theoretical grasp of the natural law? Might someone act in accordance with the natural law, but because they lack a proper understanding of what it is, they would be unable to explain to others why they should act the same way?
1: I think that's entirely possible. Um, You could have somebody who acts in accordance with natural law, and yet, because they're lacking kind of theory, when questioned about this, would be unable to give a persuasive account of why others ought to act in this way. Now I'm not sure it follows from that, that they would be unable to teach about natural law. And what I mean by that is if we think of say good parents raising kids, I think good parents raising kids do in fact teach their children natural law. Now those words natural law may never come out of their mouths, but if they're good people, what they're doing is acting in accordance with the principles of natural law. And so they're telling the truth, they're being a good friend, they're pursuing knowledge, they're a good husband, a good wife. So they're doing all these things in their life, and they are, in doing that, teaching their children. In fact, they're teaching their children in the most powerful way. If I had to choose between parents who did the right thing, but didn't talk about it, or people, parents who said the right thing, and then in fact, in their actions in life did the opposite of that, it seems to me it's much better for kids to have parents that are actually doing the right thing, even if they're not talking about it. Now, in an ideal situation, you'd have both, right? You'd have the parents actually providing good example, doing the right thing, and also able to articulate, hey, here's why I tell the truth. Here's why I'm a good friend. Here's why I'm generous to others, especially those in need. Here's why I do what I do. And that would be uh, the ideal situation. But obviously you do get people that maybe are less educated or less intelligent. And so for them, it might be very difficult for them to give a fully richly articulated view about, well, here are the ultimate principles of natural law. And he, you know, here's, why, here's how it all fits together. Um, I don't think that's, that's necessary to teach in the most important sense of raising a child, giving good example, encouraging right and wrong providing discipline when needed, et cetera. All that can be done, I think, without a theoretical perspective. But ideally, I think that the, all those good things would be enhanced by kind of adding a, a kind of theoretical perspective. And that is that is, in a way, I think, what Aristotle's doing. Hmm. So Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, I think, is written not to convince a skeptic, like somebody says, oh, I, I'm, you know, totally a vicious person. I'm not, I don't care about living a good life. But it's written to give a theoretical, um, what would you say, not justification exactly, but a a theoretical backing to the person who's already a good person, who has good habits, who's moving in the right direction. And this is going to kind of deepen and enrich that lived practice that they're already engaged in to give a a sort of more solid intellectual foundation and to kind of aid the, the moving forward of that person.
0: This may be apocryphal, but I'm reminded of Winston Churchill's line. Supposedly, uh, he read Nicomachean ethics and he said to someone, he didn't learn anything new in it. It it, had just confirmed what he already believed.
1: Yeah. I I hadn't heard that quotation from Churchill before. I I, I would be a little surprised if it confirmed what he already believed in every respect in that (laughs) Aristotle's discussion of many things is so detailed and so nuanced. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Winston Churchill, but if it's true, he really didn't learn anything from that, then he's even a greater man than I thought.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll see if I can dig that quote up. And if so, I'll I'll put it in the show notes. Um, But returning to your book, in large part, it's about what Christianity has to teach Jordan Peterson. Let's flip it. What do you think practicing Christians might be able to learn from Jordan Peterson?
1: I think there's a lot of things that practicing Christians can learn from Jordan Peterson. And the first thing would be having a kind of courage. I I wouldn't say that this is, um, that there are no Christians who have this. I think Robert George, for instance, has this in spades. He too is willing to stand up and to say what he thinks is true and to provide a kind of public witness to these truths, and I know, uh, I've talked to Robbie about this, that he gets notes and stuff from people that say privately, oh, great job, I'm totally with you. <laughs> and then they'll, they'll never raise their head above the, you know, uh, you know, publicly to say anything like that. Yeah. But I think that that Jordan Peterson, I hope can inspire people to try to say what they think is true to be willing to engage with other people, even though you know, you're going to take hits and you're going to take pushback and so that's one way in which i think that uh christians certainly can can learn from him and also i think that christians can learn from him a ton about psychology and science so in listening to his lectures i know that i've really learned a lot about evolutionary psychology i've learned a lot about personality theory i've learned a lot about jung so i've learned a lot about a lot of things from listening to his lectures and so insofar as I think any, not just Christian, but any person can um, enrich themselves by learning more about various truths. I think that anybody really can learn something from Jordan Peterson.
0: All right, Chris, we have time for for one more question. Uh, I know we have some listeners. I've spoken with a few of them who are huge fans of Jordan Peterson. They've read his books, listened to his lectures and podcasts, and they're looking to continue their intellectual and moral development. Where should they turn next?
1: Um, well, he, okay, so his teaching of people is ongoing, right? I mean, he has this uh, podcast that comes out on a regular basis. He has things that he's writing that are coming out on a regular basis. So I think it's certainly possible to continue development and learning through looking to Peterson himself. Sure. In in the book I wrote, what I've tried to do is point people also to other resources that could be really helpful for kind of moving in continuing this intellectual uh, search, as it were. And one of the resources that, that I talk about uh, quite a bit, at least at the end of the book, is the work of Alistair McIntyre. Mm-hmm. So McIntyre, I think, is a really, really interesting guy to put in a conversation with Peterson, in part because McIntyre provides, I think, a, a fuller articulation of some of the things that Peterson talks about. So for instance, if we go back to natural law, um, McIntyre talks about the idea that To even have a conversation with another person, we have to at least implicitly obey the basic principles of natural law, for instance, not to harm the innocent. And if our conversation is gonna be truly fruitful, we need to speak truthfully to each other and honestly to each other so that we can have a real exchange of views. And so I think people like McIntyre would would help Peterson and, and those who like Peterson to kind of continue down the road of intellectual development. And one other resource that I talk about in the book quite a bit is the work of uh, Joseph Ratzinger, that is Pope Benedict XVI. If people haven't read him, I think that it would be incredibly fruitful to rediscover or read for the first time uh, Ratzinger's work because he is a person of really profound insights. And he's, he's, I think in part so valuable because he combines a kind of clarity of expression with also a profundity of thought. And this is very, very hard to do. Yeah. So it's fairly easy to be clear and superficial and then to be profound and incomprehensible that, that people do that too. But Joseph Ratzinger is one of the few people, I think that really combines a great clarity with a great prof- profundity. And so you know, I would hope Peterson and others who like him would turn to someone like Joseph Ratzinger to really uh, pursue these questions of ultimate meaning to an even greater degree. Our guest today has been
0: Christopher Kaiser. We have been discussing his fabulous new book, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. There you have it, Madisonians. Christopher Kaiser makes his virtual return to the James Madison program. I encourage everyone to go get a copy of Chris's book. It's a very short read and a very interesting read. Now, as promised, there are several links in the show notes for your benefit, and also, as promised, the Churchill quote. As the story goes, after reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, Churchill remarked, quote, It is extraordinary how much of it I had already thought out for myself, end quote. It's always nice to end with a little Aristotle and Churchill, So we'll end things there. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation. And I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.